That is the means by which he makes himself known. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures that you get to call yours, that puts you at a disadvantage. We think the best way to know God is to chase after knowing him through his word. And so uh, if you don't have a copy of your own that you can call yours, you take that physical one home. That'll be uh, one of the best parts of our week. It's, it's hard to top VBS, though. Um, so we've, we've got everything decorated. All right. We just made a bunch of formerly respectable adults try to keep up with the motions of a silly song. All right. Um, we've got time invested in this. We've got energy invested in this. Nicole is about to blow a gasket. All right. Uh, all of the things are in place. We're throwing all kinds of resources and effort at a week of vacation Bible school. But, but, but why? <laughs> right? Like, why would we put forth this kind of effort? Why would we change the, 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 the decorations in here and throw all of the things and make all this stuff colorful? Why would we go to all the trouble? Why would we devote ourselves to, come, 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 let's be honest, it's such a costly task. Well, it's actually really, really simple. Because VBS is pound for pound the best making disciples efforts for children that we have in our tool belt. And it is by a landslide. Um, it's, in, it's so by an incredibly wide margin over multiple metrics, even. First of all, we, we've got no other effort in the life of our church that brings more people who are not already connected to our church family, not a regular presence here. We've got no other effort that brings in more of those people. Chris Fahey, I, I, I kind of like her. She's always helping us think through uh, how to be better at what we would call outreach efforts here. Uh, it's good and right that she does so, and I think she's helped our church family get better at that kind of thing. But also, VBS has her beat by a country mile. Um, when it comes at least to getting outsiders in the door. Not because she's not doing a great job, she's doing a bang-up job, but VBS exists in a different stratosphere. They're not the same thing. Uh, and what's more, if we tried even just a tiny bit harder uh, the, the, on the VBS thing, it would be even more of a landslide. Lifeway did a nationwide study back in 2019, all right, and they found uh, that uh, 69% of parents would allow their children to go to a VBS at a church they don't attend if they were invited by a friend. 69%. Now, I know we're in New England. I know the communities and neighborhoods that we live in probably help to bring that national average down just a little bit. We don't really do community. <laughs> but even accounting for that, the potential of Vacation Bible School to reach into homes that we're not reaching through other means, it's a big one. There's a lot of potential there. Significantly higher potential than every other tool that we've got available to us. But notice, I don't know if you caught it when I said it, that survey, that Lifeway survey, 69% of parents, it said they would let their kids go to a VBS of a church they don't attend if invited by a friend. Not... Not that parents would let them attend VBSs where the church had a really slick advertising campaign. Not that parents let their children attend VBSs where the church wisely took out a bunch of really targeted Facebook ads. Those things can be good, they can be useful, but that's not what the survey found. No, a personal invitation from someone they consider to be a friend. So church, let me make something crystal clear this morning. It is not too late to invite someone to VBS this week. And if you do, there's a high likelihood that God's going to use it in a massive way. 
a high likelihood. Even in our New england bringing the average down, the, the odds are that it's greater than 50%. That it will affect someone's week on a massive, massive level. But what are we inviting them to? Well, that's the next metric that VBS blows out of the water. Three and a half hours a day. Feels longer than three and a half hours a day, but three and a half hours a day. Five days a week. Again, feels way longer than five days that you've got to climb that mountain. All right? But three and a half hours a day, five days a week, that adds up to 17 and a half hours for the week that we are putting uh, kids under our direct discipleship efforts. 17 and a half hours. When you account for parents not showing up on time to pick up their kids, that begins to bleed into 20 hours for the week. And if you look at that number, it's probably easy to think, just 17 and a half hours, that's not much. 20 hours even, that's still not that much. But if you compare it to other really good things around here, children's ministry efforts that we think are right and good, the fall semester of our midweek children's programming, our Wednesday night Bible studies during the school year, that adds up in the fall semester to only 12 hours total. A full semester of weekly children's Bible studies, 100% worth our time, 100% worth our resources, 100% worth our effort. BBS packs a bigger punch than that. The spring semester of our midweek programming is a lot longer. It's just how the calendar works. Uh, It adds up to 20 hours. It's a slightly bigger number, sure, but it takes us five whole months to accumulate those 20 hours. It takes us five months to pull that off. Church, there's more Bible study shoved into a week of vacation Bible school than multiple months of our other really good, totally worth it children's ministry programs. Yes, there are silly songs and even sillier motions. Yes, there are decorations and cutting up and having fun. And yes, there are a bunch of, of adult volunteers at the end of the week who are going, I'm not sure I'm going to do this again next year. But make no mistake about it, VBS is a week-long, age-contextualized assault on children's hearts for the kingdom of God. Period. It packs the biggest punch we have. VBS is worth it. It is worth the money, it is worth the volunteer hours, and it's worth the exhaustion. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. While while many of you, many in this room even, will be helping us throughout this next week by a hundred different ways. We've got teachers and snack servers, and I'm supposed to get kids excited in the rally. We've got people doing rec, and people doing missions, and people doing all the things. Most of us in here won't be here this week. You have like real jobs that you have to go to. Sorry, you have such a boring life. So what can you do? What what is the regular church member that's not going to be here all week long, isn't available to invest in this really good thing? What can you do? Well, after, after making sure you invite your friend, the answer is prayer. Church, we need a lot of prayer this week. Um, we need to ask God to do big things. We need to ask him to save some kids. And change the way they see themselves and how they fit in the world. And I think we even need to ask for protection in what we're trying to do this week. Uh, you may have never thought through this or not, but the Bible teaches that we have an enemy. He's not a nice guy, and if VBS is all that we believe it is and claim that it is, I'm going to go ahead and guess that our enemy is probably aware of that too. 
It's probably a target for him. So not only are we going to give a, our small groups an opportunity um, during our small group hour to uh, spend some time praying in your room, and not only did Nicole put in the effort to put prayer guides out throughout the, the room, you can take those home and uh, use them uh, throughout this next week to know about specific things to pray for. We're going we're gonna to do all those things. Um, but I also want to take the rest of our time this morning to help inform how you can pray this week. And I want to do that by giving us all a better understanding of, uh, of what is the larger biblical push of what we're going to be studying over the next five days with our kids here. And that's why we're in Psalm 25. Our, our theme verse for the week, uh, Sherry mentioned it, it comes from Psalm 25. It'll be verse 4 in a moment. Uh, but let's read the whole thing, all of Psalm 25 together. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Some people's uh, tornado warnings are going off. It's a fun day. All right. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you, are, for you I wait all the day long. Verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not my sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 11, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. His, uh, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and he will pluck, out, uh, pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins." Verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. All right, so what we have here is one of David's psalms of lament, which, let's be honest, sounds like a really fun week for VBS, right? Gather around, children. Lean in close. We're going to do one of the sad songs of the Bible. Two things are true. At least I think two things are true. First, children understand and experience sadness. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they absolutely do. Therefore, therefore children need to see how the Bible deals with sadness. There, there are lots of really well-meaning folks out there who think that children's Bible curriculum and instruction ought to only ever focus on the happier stories. They ought to stay away from sin issues and failure and sadness and the brokenness of the world. But kids have sin issues and failures and sadness and are broken in the world. And so if if we shield them from the Bible's example, example and we shield them from the Bible's instruction in those things, even 
in, in the seemingly noble-sounding aim to focus on the happy stuff, what we do is end up dooming those kids to try and navigate those experiences without the tools that God has graciously given to his people. Does that sound like a loss to you? Because it sounds like a loss to me. If you're reading the Bible with your kids, don't, don't run away from the hard texts. Now, are there things that aren't on their radar yet? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For the youngest ones specifically, we can probably put sexual issues on that list. You can probably continue avoiding that topic for now if your kids are in the single digits. But if it's something that's on their radar, if it's something that they're beginning to, to see around them and, and notice going on in the world and start figuring out how the world works, uh, uh, then like and figuring out figuring out about how they should understand that issue perhaps i don't know just a thought maybe we should do our best to explain it in an age-friendly way and trust that god is big enough and smart enough and that maybe he even loves your kids more than you do and so he can be trusted to use his word however he sees fit to use his word Does that sound like a smart play because here's the deal that i think every parent needs to figure out sooner or later and hopefully it's sooner I guarantee you that their friends and the TV shows they're watching and the school system will not cede their ground in trying to influence how your kids understand the world around them. Don't you dare give up God's good plan and the tools he's put in your hands to shape how they see and understand and make sense of things, especially for the sake of choosing the happier texts. They're going to learn all without your help that the world is broken. So maybe we ought to show them how God is repairing the world. And that leads us to the second thing that I think it's important to see in David's psalm of lament here. David sees hope laying just beyond the borders of the sadness he's currently facing. David sees hope laying just beyond the borders of the sadness he's currently facing. And he speaks to that hope right out of the gate. All right, he, he, he doesn't hesitate. A lot of the psalms of lament, they wait until the very end of the psalm to try to bring the hope in. No, David launches into the hope right out of the gate. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 25. Verse 1 says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame, and they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now, we don't know when exactly in David's life that this psalm is written. We're not told here. We're not told anywhere else. Good God. Now it's my phone. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. Okay. All right. So let it be known that no matter what your settings are, the weather app will interrupt you. All right. So because I guarantee my phone's on silent. All right. So which low moment in David's life is this? Well, we don't know. David had a lot of low moments. I don't know if you've studied his life at all, right? And so whatever low moment this one happens to be, speaking directly to God, David still understands exactly where his hope is found. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Rather than, the, rather than trying to fight it off himself, right, David takes his, his hands off of the controls. And he yanks them back, and he, he places his patience and his trust in God to do whatever God is going to do. And whatever God is going to do, David is certain that through it, he will not be put to shame. He will not be put to shame. Unlike those who are wantonly treacherous, which, let's be honest, really cool name for like a metal band. Right? 
you imagine the t-shirt on that? that? That will sell. Unlike those who are wantonly treacherous, those who are willingly running into and embracing their sin, David says shame is headed their way. Why? Because it won't be very long, soon. Whatever that day actually gets here, whenever it finally arrives, soon the wantonly treacherous will be proven to have placed their hope in something that cannot save them. Hope that is placed in the Lord is sure. Hope that is placed in anything else, no matter how awesome that anything else might sound, will always lead to destruction. And so in David's Jesus take the wheel kind of moment, he says this in verse 4. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord, is our theme verse for the day, for the week. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So it's not hard, I think, to put the pieces together and figure out how Lifeway came up with the theme verse out of verse 4. Like, it's pretty obvious. Board games have specific rules and and designs that you're supposed to follow, right? Um, Disregard that design. uh, Disregard those rules. And it's not, the game's not going to go very well. It's just not. You you may cobble together something that kind of sort of works. You may even have a lot of fun with your version of the game, your shifted version of the game, but it's not the game that you're playing. It's a distorted version of the game. And the makers of that game would take one look at what you're doing and think that you don't understand the beauty of their design. They may even have righteous cause to take action against you. Depending on how public your repurposing of their game is, you may be getting to play with a lawsuit next. In the same way, in the same way David pleads with God in this moment to teach him how to walk, how to live in a way that is pleasing to God, pleasing to the designer. David's enemies, the wantonly treacherous, they spend their lives pursuing what is pleasing to them, disregarding how God has designed life to be lived. They're cobbling something together that may seem fulfilling, it may seem pleasurable for a season. They may even ascribe more joy to their version of life than what God has actually given to them, but it's a distorted version. The author of their lives thinks that they don't understand the beauty of his design. The beauty of what he's built. So David starts doing the math in his head here. What exactly is deserved for disregarding the author's perfect design and opinion on how life is to be lived? What's owed for that? What is deserved for brazenly rejecting the designer's intent for how the game of your life is to be played? And in verses 6 and 7, David skips ahead to address that. Read it with me. It says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. He says, Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. So what what does David do? Well, he goes first to God with full acknowledgement that he's not innocent in this. This It's not just some nameless group of baddies out on the fringe who are making a mess of things. No, David sees a problem in his own heart. 
David can point to some intemperate times in his own past that he disregarded God's design for his life. And so he pleads with God to put away his own sins. Listen. Not. Not because David has now reworked his life in such a way that God's happy with him now. Church, you miss this, you miss the gospel. David doesn't point to his own character here. Points to God's character for his hope of forgiveness. Your mercy. Your steadfast love. Not just now, uh, but from of old. Meaning, these are eternal realities about who God is. He says, put away my transgressions, not just for my sake, but for the sake of your name. For your goodness, O Lord. It is the same tone and assumptions that David had back in verse 4. He deeply understands that it is not up to him to blindly figure out the rules of the game here. He's not, he's not got his eyes closed, pulling the levers, hoping to figure out which is the pathway he should walk. And church, at no point has God ever left us to blindly figure out what is pleasing to him either. The guy who wrote Psalm 25 and begs God to instruct him is the exact same guy who wrote half a dozen other psalms in delighting the law of the Lord. He's the same guy who in Psalm 19 says, the testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. He's the same guy who said, the commands of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Listen, David knows exactly where to run when it comes time to find the instruction of the Lord. He's not confused on the issue. It's not something he's trying to figure out. No, whenever he is able, David makes a beeline to God's word. But David does not rest in pursuing God's forgiveness and instruction just for himself. In verse 8, David turns his attention to those who will be reading and singing his psalm. Look at verse 8. He says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So the first seven verses of this psalm, David is talking in the second person, directly to God. But in verse 8, David shifts. Now he's talking in the third person. He's talking to his audience about God. All right? Don't you know how good he is? Haven't you seen how he instructs sinners in the way? Are you humble before him? Because if so, he leads the humble in what is right and he teaches them. That James fellow, that character that we've been talking about for the last several months, apparently he was just ripping off David's psalms all the time. Talking about humility before God, all, the, all, the, all that he did. David says that, once God has taught the humble what is good and pleasing to him, uh, that paths of righteousness and a steadfast love and faithfulness are available to them. And if you didn't catch that either the first time or the second time I said it, I said paths, as in plural. Multiple paths of steadfast love and faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I found it to be true. I don't have as much experience playing board games as probably maybe a lot of other people do, but I found that the best games are the ones that are specifically designed to let you roam around a bit. Explore the world. Build something that you like within the assumptions and the priorities of the game. Church, the Christian life isn't any different than that. There's a window of humility and faithfulness, but inside of that window, and there's lots of room to roam around. This is 
There's a lot of freedom to explore and to build, not, not at odds with the designer, but by the blessing of the designer. He delights in what you build when it's built with the presuppositions and assumptions of how he's designed his world and life to work. God has created you to know him and to think like him and to value what he values. Sin stands in the way of that. It mars the appearance of his beauty in your heart. It causes you to reject his good and wise authority and instead usurp that and try to set out to make your own petty little kingdom. But for those who humble themselves before the Lord, for those who submit themselves to his good design, they are set free to enjoy and experience all of his good gifts in a way that brings them the deepest possible satisfaction and God the greatest possible glory. The idea that God's design somehow stands in the way of your freedom, somehow stands in the way of your fulfillment of joy, is literally the oldest lie in the world because it's the exact same lie that the serpent gave to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. The exact same lie. There's no difference. Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord by accepting and then acting upon the idea that they could define their lives better than the one who put them in the garden. That they could chase after and attain joy that God was somehow selfishly withholding from them. It's a lie that's still assumed and presumed and rebroadcasted by opponents of the Lord today. And unfortunately, it's a lie that we still personally swallow over and over and over again because we never seem to learn. It's an effective lie. But here in Psalm 25, David warns his audience to not be seduced by it. Instead, humble yourself before the Lord. He will instruct sinners in the way and all his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. When postured correctly, when instructed to see and think like he sees and thinks, the world is open to you. So go, do, enjoy, or we can rip up God's own words, be fruitful and multiply. That's his design. But then we get to verse 11. It says, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David steps away from his audience. For just a second, he's going to come back to addressing them again in verse 12, but he steps away from them in a moment, for just a moment, and he speaks directly to God again. Why? Because David again sees his own weakness here. He sees his own weakness. He sees his own propensity to swallow the lie. And again, he pleads upon God's good character instead of his own to pardon him. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find I need a holy time out to remind me that I need the grace of God as desperately as everybody else in the room does. Or am I the only person that has to do that? Church, we have a dear friend in David. He gets us. He gets us, man. I know exactly what that's like. But then David returns to his audience in verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. His eyes are ever toward the Lord, and he will pluck my feet out of the net. So there exists a pretty 
sizable disconnect, a gap, I think, uh, in a lot of people's mind between fear and pleasure. Those two things feel like they're in conflict with each other for a lot of people. Uh, They see those two things as fundamentally opposed to each other. But here's what you need to lock in on. The Bible doesn't see those things as a disconnect. Not at all. In fact, the Bible usually links those two things together. That disconnect may exist in our culture, but that disconnect does not exist in the Bible. David says here that it is a proper fear of the Lord that leads to the pleasure of knowing him. And so we seem to have, I think, two very big different words that need to probably have clearer definitions, right? That's probably the, the good educational thing to do right now. So how does the Bible define fear? Or at least the good kind of fear as opposed to the bad kind. And then, how does the Bible define pleasure? What is the biblical definition of the good kind of fear? Or what the Bible describes as the fear of the Lord? Well, I would articulate it as an awe-filled reverence. An awe-filled reverence. To be filled with awe is to be filled with a sense of your smallness in the presence of God's bigness. Or we could say it this way. A sense of your value and glory being properly relativized and categorized in the presence of God's infinite value and glory. You see him for who he really is and you get a more accurate picture of his beauty and his majesty. And in doing so, instantaneously, you immediately understand your proper place. Reverence can be better described as a sense of respect plus the measured actions consistent with and naturally flowing out of that sense of respect. Give you an example. You should not, I mean this completely, you should not be so scared of a lion that you are incapable of looking at a picture of one or visiting one in a zoo. That would be an irrational and unhealthy fear. Completely so. However, you should totally be scared enough of a lion that it immediately strikes you as a terrible idea to walk up to one and smack it in the face. We're all on the same page about that. That is a healthy fear of lions. The same is true when it comes to me teaching my kids about crossing the road. A fear that debilitates their ability to ever cross a road. Unhealthy fear. But I desperately am trying to teach them a proper fear of the road that that they never walk up to one and cross it without looking both ways. If you've ever been a parent of a seven-year-old, eight-year-old boy, you have no idea how many times we've had that lesson. When David and other biblical writers speak of the fear of the Lord, This is what they're talking about. Not debilitation. Not irrational fear. Not something that prevents you from drawing near to him. No, no. They're talking about a right and sober understanding that you are a creature in the presence of your creator. It's a bad idea to walk up and smack him in the face. There are obvious and natural actions that ought to flow out of the realization of who you are in the presence of who he is. Okay, but what about the pleasure part of that? Okay, we got a better idea of the fear of the Lord. How in the world would pleasure ever be linked to that? When the Bible talks about pleasure, it's speaking not only 
about enjoying the goodness of a thing, but the, but the bigger and deeper and more beautiful reality that God is better than that thing. And the good giver of that thing. And that to be rightly delighting in whatever created thing you're delighting in will naturally end up delighting even more in God as its author and giver. And so David's calculus here, he argues that a right and sober understanding of the glory of who God is opens the door for you to experience and delight God's supreme glory. Without the fear of the Lord, it's obvious that you don't see him correctly. And if you don't see him correctly, how could you ever lose yourself in the beauty of who he is? So David says, the man who fears the Lord, he will receive instruction. His soul shall abide, shall live forever in well-being. His offspring will inherit the land of promise. Those sound like pretty good things. Sound like really, really good things. But as great as those things sound, verse 14 blows them out of the water. Those who fear the Lord will experience the friendship of the Lord. They will be in the Lord's inner circle and he will make known to them his covenant. The false religions of this world, they, they offer up all kinds of half-baked solutions for the problem of pain and the problem of sadness, they range all the way from declaring your victory to rebuke that sadness away, all the way to, you know, sadness is nothing but a construct, and all what you have to do is disassociate from the physical world, and that way you can disassociate from sadness itself. But what makes the gospel of Jesus incredibly unique is that God offers himself in the middle of sadness. Yes, sometimes he takes the sadness away. That is true. And sometimes he doesn't. That's also true. But whether he does or does not, his promise is to step into our pain and sadness and hang out with us while we're there. And in doing so, he overwhelms our sadness with the light of his good presence. Church, those who see the Lord rightly humble themselves before him. And when you properly humble yourself before him, you allow him to lead. But listen, those who allow the Lord to lead will also deeply, deeply enjoy the Lord's leadership. Is this a place where we can be honest? I really hope it is. My dumb, made-up rules about how life is going to supposedly work better than God's design, it ne they never work nearly as well as I hope they will. Am I the only idiot? And his ways are good. His ways are good. And it doesn't really take all that much to prove that his ways are better than, and more fulfilling than mine because I set a really low bar. Besides, my, my sin-bent man-made plans usually end up costing me something pretty important along the way. And often, it's very, not very long before I make a complete mess of myself. And even worse, drag others I love into that mess. Man, I'm a train wreck. I'm not nearly as good a designer as he is. And I'm guessing that David knows all of that about his own heart too, because he returns speaking directly to God in verse 16. It says, turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes 
and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. David pleads with God one last time to, to be gentle towards him and to be gracious towards him. Yes, David is facing some unknown problems in his life at the moment. We don't know what those, uh, uh, what those problems are. He seems to have very real enemies. All right? And for David, his enemies are actual enemies, not like our version of enemies. His enemies are not the nitpicking neighbor from your HOA, and it's not that guy at work who's gunning for the same promotion as you. No, David's enemies want to kill him, like actually want to murder him. If he, if he happens to be king while he's writing this, we don't know, that happened a little bit later in his life. If he's actually king while he's writing this, it means that his enemies want to depose him and his uh, lineage from the throne. I mean, we're talking about a fun day for David. David has really good reasons for sadness in this moment, but David has far, far greater reason for his hope. Why? Because on a sad day or not, the Lord is near. The Lord is near, and his character will not fall short in David's time of need. Why? Because God's character never falls short. Well, listen, David trusts God's character because he actually knows God. There's relationship here. There's history here. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus yet, uh, trying to navigate a life that is a designer without knowing that designer, it doesn't work very well. And I'd love nothing more than to help you meet him. I'd love to help you establish that relationship with Jesus today. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls that punishment death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy, and that he loves us with an undeserved and great Love that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that he makes us spiritually alive again through the grace of Christ. Okay, but how does he do that? The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. The author and designer of life didn't simply sit back and complain that we were getting the game wrong. That we misunderstand the beauty of his design. No, the Father sent the Son. Jesus lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live and apparently David couldn't live either. Jesus lived sinlessly, but Jesus also died sacrificially. He laid his own life down as a satisfaction, a sacrifice, a payment for sin for you and me. Salvation doesn't come because of our character. No, salvation is purchased by his good character. Jesus lived sinlessly, he died sacrificially, but the Bible also teaches that he was raised again victoriously. Now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that today. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing again. I'll be down front if you want to talk about that. You don't need some mediator, just like David did. He went straight to God. You need Jesus. But we can talk. Man, I'd love to talk. What if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? Can we, can we respond too? Yeah, we respond the same way as we do every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think we get to see that our God is continuously calling us back to an incredibly simple trust that he is good and that his ways are always better than our best laid plans. That's true in my own life. 
And that if we would only humble ourselves before him, maybe, I don't know, maybe we could stop fighting so hard against his good design for our lives. If nothing else, man, let's, let's pray this week that a bunch of VBS kids don't end up believing the same lie that we so easily fall victim to. That's my prayer for them today. I'd love to guard them from the insufficiencies I carry and you carry and David carried. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe you're here and you, you've been here for a while now and God's been making it clear to you it's time to take a step forward and join our church family in a formal way by, through membership. Or, or maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit, but you've never been obedient to his command to be baptized. We can, we can talk about that too. Or maybe... Maybe it's time to publicly say yes to some call that God's putting on your heart and life to take the gospel to somewhere that doesn't know him yet. Whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 25. Thank you for being the God who's not only near, but willing to teach us your paths. Willing to teach us how to live in a way that is good and beautiful and pleasing to you. Not in a way that overwhelms and removes our creativity and personality, but in a way that actually causes us to flourish. Your paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. God, we do pray for our vacation Bible school this week. Would you, would you do some big things? Especially with our, our Bible study time. Yeah, we want to have lots of fun. We want kids to be safe. We want all those good things. But, man, we'd rather have you show up in a big way. Would you do that? Would you empower our teachers to share the gospel well? We know it's you who changes hearts, so would you do that? God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Maybe give us a little bit of all-filled reverence today. And forever change us by it. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.